It is good to see you, and it's also great to be with those who are watching. Um, thank you so much for choosing to, to be worshiping with the Lord, the Lord with us uh, here today. My name is Ezra. I'm one of the pastors here at Northview. If I haven't met you yet, um, it's such a joy that we can um, worship the Lord together and also open his word together. Before I jump into the text that we'll be looking at today, I'd like to pray, but um, as I pray, I'd also want to invite you to pray. And the reason why I'm inviting you to pray is this. Every single time you hear a sermon preached, you want to ask God to help you embrace and take in the passage and the truth that his word is presenting before you. That this passage would find feet in your life. So any sermon you hear from here on end, I would encourage you, when the preacher is up here preaching, you'll be praying that the Lord, that the passage will find soft soil in your heart so that you may be doers of the word and not just hearers only. So that on Tuesday, you haven't forgotten what was said on Sunday. So let's pray. And just ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Father, we come before you here today. We thank you for your grace and your goodness toward us. We thank you for the privilege you've given us to interact with your word. We have sung, we have worshiped you, we have mingled with friends and loved ones. And Lord, now as we steal our hearts before your presence, we ask that you would speak through your word. Help us, Father, to, to see you for who you are and to submit our hearts to you. Would your word speak to us today? Father, I pray for myself that, Lord, you'd help me to be articulate and clear with that which I have to share with my brothers and sisters here today. We ask that, Father, would you use me in a mighty way for the sake of your glory and for the joy of your people. We commend ourselves now to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You will need a Bible, and uh, when, you're, when you have it, go to Mark chapter 11. Mark 11, verse 1 to 10 will be the text that we'll be looking at today. Now, as a, as a young boy growing up in Africa, in case, again, if you've not met me before, Ezra is my name, I grew up in Africa, I'm Kenyan, in case it wasn't obvious. Um, so I grew up in Kenya. Um, and so my mom spent a lot of time reading Bible stories to us. So she bought 10 volumes of, a Bible, of Bible storybooks with pictures and things. And they were remarkable books, all Bible-based books. And so she would open and read stories to us and be looking. I'd be looking at the pictures and the pictures of Jesus, the pictures of uh, David and Samson and Goliath. Like I saw all these pictures in this like cartoon type pictures in this book and I was just drawn in as mom was reading the stories to me. And then we came to this Easter story. So mom is reading about how Jesus now, he goes to the garden of Gethsemane and there his betrayer comes and they arrest him and I'm like, okay, this story will have a good ending surely. And then one thing leads to another, he's flogged and this and that, a trial. And then um, Pilate says, okay, he gives them, he, he says, okay, you can now take him and crucify him. And I was like, what? 
No, this is not how this story is supposed to go and Jesus dies. And then the story um, ends with, yeah, and he rose back to life again, which of course now we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus next week and we'll be celebrating you know, Easter Sunday. He is risen indeed. But as a little boy, the gospel quite didn't make sense yet. So I'm still stuck with how could these bad guys kill Jesus? So I wondered, you know, where was Spider-Man <laughs> to save the day? Where was the superhero? And I began having these rage fantasies in my mind saying, if only I was there, you know, I would be the only one who would stand up for Jesus and defend him. How could these bad guys kill Jesus? You see, the stories that my mom had read, you know, Jesus is healing different people. Jesus is gracious and kind and merciful and loving. And he is. And the pictures would show him there with a the little lamb and little kids. It was remarkable. So I fell in love with Jesus. Did not like the ones who killed him. And so as a young man, I thought, well, Jesus is definitely was blindsided by unfortunate events. Jesus was a victim of unfortunate circumstances, or so I thought as a kid. But is this true? Is it true that Jesus was a victim of unfortunate circumstances? Well, let's find out. The passage again, Mark 11, verse 1 to 10. I will read the text, and then we'll unpack it together. Now... When they, this is they, Jesus with his disciples, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a cold tide on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back immediately. And they, the disciples, went away and found a cord tied to, uh, at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the cord? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And the brother called to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. There ends our reading. Now, if you were to divide the gospel of Mark from which the text we just read, if you're, divi- if you're to divide the gospel of Mark into uh, um, into three sections. Chapter 11 would be the third section of this book. And theologians have divided this book into three. And chapter 11 is the beginning of the third section. And this section basically talks about Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He is riding on a donkey and not a horse. Why not a horse? Why a donkey? We will talk about that in a bit. And so now we see many in Jerusalem are spreading their cloaks on the road. Because back in the day, they would wear cloaks. They would tie, you know, they would, they would wrap themselves around their different clothes and things. 
And so they removed their cloaks and they put them on this road. And then some would have cut leafy branches and they would bring them. That's why we, we call it Palm Sunday. And they would put these leafy branches down. And, and many would be shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest question. Why are they shouting? We will talk about that. What is remarkable here is this. They're taking all these cloaks off and they're putting them on the ground. Now this is dusty Israel. So Palestine is, is a very dusty, um, dusty country, dusty part of the world. So rocks and dust everywhere. So when you're taking your cloak and you're putting it down, obviously it'll all be dirty and dusty. And the, the, the donkey that Jesus is sitting on, the coat he's sitting on, is going to step on this. And obviously, there are people everywhere. And so some will be running behind and shouting and stepping on your cloak. So why are people doing this? Well, N.T. Wright, who is a well-respected theologian, made this comment. He wrote this short little comment just on this particular scene here, this triumphant entry. He says... You do not spread cloaks on the road, especially in dusty, stony Middle East for a friend or even a respected senior member of your family. You do it for royalty. And you do not cut branches off trees or foliage from fields to wave on the streets just because you feel somewhat elated. You do it because you're welcoming a king. This is the moment for Jesus' royal reception. So Jesus is coming as king and people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And this word Hosanna basically means save us, save us. Hosanna in the highest, save us. The saying of Jesus. So what kind of salvation are they looking for? You may wonder. Well, this Hosanna on Sunday by Friday had changed to crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. See, they're all, there's a lot of jubilation and celebration on Sunday when they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and Jesus is coming the donkey, and they have their palm leaves all over and their cloaks on the ground as he's walking, as, as the donkey is walking all over this, and Jesus is riding on this donkey. That was on Sunday. Oh, it was short-lived. It was so short lived because on Friday it had turned, these hosannas had turned to crucify him, crucify him. See, as the week unfolded, Jesus' authority would be questioned. He was betrayed by his buddies, denied three times, arrested, condemned, and crucified. So, I ask again, was Jesus a victim of unfortunate circumstances? Two things I will highlight from this text here today. The first will be his lordship. We'll talk about the lordship of Christ from this text. And then secondly, his love. We will talk about the love of Christ. So, lordship of Christ will be the first point. Now, preceding this passage. So if you go to, if, if you go to chapter 10, towards the end of chapter 10, there's a story there of a blind man called Bartimaeus. So Jesus is in Jericho. 
city Jericho. And so as he's walking, now he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's passing through Jericho and there's a whole crowd. See, Jesus now has rock star status. He's been doing all these miracles. So everywhere he is, when people spot him, people are all there and they are following him and seeing the miracles. Others who are for him, others who are against him, people are following him, large crowds. So blind Bartimaeus hears that, oh, Jesus of Nazareth is in town. That's why there's a lot of commotion. He's been blind for many years from birth. And so he hears this, and then he begins to cry, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He's shouting. And then people are rebuking him, rebuking him, rebuking him. Son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus hears his voice. In the midst of the crowd, Jesus hears his voice and says, hey, why don't you bring this guy? And so he's brought to Jesus. Jesus looks at him. He's blind. Cannot see nothing. He's blind. So comes to Jesus. Jesus asks him, so what do you want me to do for you? What would you like me to do for you? Lord, I'd like to regain my sight, he says. Now, what is interesting, according to Mark, is Jesus doesn't do much. He just basically tells him, okay, go, your faith has made you well. Now, just pause and think about that for a moment. Like, the power and the authority you would have to say to a blind man who's standing in front of you, you... You don't touch him. You're not laying hands on him. You're not praying, no nothing. You just say, uh, go. Your faith has made you well. Man, that is authority. Like you've said it and you have no shadow of a doubt that what you said will happen. It'd be like me telling my son, go wash the car. Okay, now that would be a little bit of a fight. But... As a dad, I'll say, yeah, go get me this, and he'll go get, yeah. I kind of know, yeah, I'll get it. But with my kids, yeah, there'll be a little bit of a, why don't you send so-and-so? With Jesus and this blind Bartimaeus, go. What do we learn here? Jesus is, Mark is highlighting the sovereign power of this one who's on his way now to Jerusalem now. From Jericho to Jerusalem was about 27 kilometers. So I'd like you to imagine if you are the Sumas border and you want to go skiing at Mount Baker. So obviously Sumas border down, and so you have to go up all the way to Mount Baker. Now that is way more than 27 kilometers. Jerusalem, uh, uh, Jericho to Jerusalem, 27 kilometers. Obviously from. Sumas border crossing into Mount Baker is a little longer, but by the time you're 27 kilometers, you're in the area of Mount Baker. You're going up. But unlike just going up to Mount Baker here, there, this 27 kilometers was basically, you would be going up the hill 3,500 to 3,700 feet up which means it was a trek like this. So you're trekking uphill, uphill, and you're going up. This was the journey from Jericho all the way to Jerusalem. Now this road leading to Jerusalem was filled with a lot of bandits. A lot of thugs were there. The story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus talks about, this parable of the Good Samaritan, yeah, Jesus is highlighting this very road 
which everybody knew they were thieves on this road. So when you're going from Jericho to Jerusalem, you kind of want to hasten a little bit. And you're kind of holding your breath because you don't know if bandits would ambush you there. So you kind of want to get to Jerusalem quickly as you're going up. So as you're trekking on this road, there is this sense of anticipation. It's almost like if you're driving your kids to Disneyland and you're getting closer and closer, you know, you're Washington State and then you go through Oregon and then you come to California and you're making your way and so there's this anticipation. We are almost there. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Because they've never been. So anyone who's coming to Jerusalem, man, there's this great anticipation. We are coming to Jerusalem, God's city. And so there is this great anticipation. We're going to come to God's city. It's a special city. Lots of history here. But also you want to get there quickly because, you know, there are thugs. There's imminent danger. So the sooner I can get there, the better. But also your feet are hurting. Why? Because you're climbing up a hill and you're going and going and going. Jerusalem was God's city. And so you'd be looking forward to get there. It has a special place in scripture. I mentioned many places. And you'll be welcomed with this amazing side of the city. And not only that. During the Passover feast. Which when Jesus was going up. It was around Passover. And all Jews from all walks of life, would be making their way to Jerusalem, many of them with their animals, their goats, their their cattle, their sheep. They they want to sacrifice the animals in Jerusalem. Why? Because they are remembering the Passover, the Exodus. How God took his people from, from Egypt rescued them from Egypt from the from the hand of Pharaoh. You know the story. They walk through the water into the wilderness. So when Jesus is now going to to Jerusalem, it was around the Passover. So lots of people, lots of animals, they're all there. It was Passover time. And so the city would have so many people. Um, Historians would say the city would almost have like 2 million people would ascend up to Jerusalem. To sacrifice the animal and to remember what the Lord had done. So it was a busy, busy, busy time of year. Busy time of year. So it was in this setting (laughs) that Jesus is going up. And then he will say something very interesting in verse 2, 3 of our passage here. Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a cold tide on which no one has ever sat. What? Like there's... Two million people in the city, they've all come with their animals because they'll have carried their supplies on donkeys and everything, and their goats and sheep, everything. People everywhere. It's almost like Vancouver fireworks. Have you ever been there on fireworks? When everybody's everywhere, you're bumping shoulders with people. Remember pre-COVID, how crazy it would be down there? Or remember when um, the Vancouver Olympics and Canada was playing their gold medal game and everybody and their dog was in downtown Vancouver? watching on the big screen because it was ridiculous, ridiculously expensive to enter into Rogers Arena to watch this game live. People everywhere. This was now the, the vicinity. Animals everywhere. Jesus says to his disciples, uh, just go into the city in front of you, this village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a cold tide on which no one has ever sat and tight and bring it to me. Wow. 
Really? And if anyone asks you, what are you doing? Yeah, just say to them, the Lord is in need of it, and um, he will send it right back immediately. What is interesting here is the disciples are like, okay, we will go. Let me just pause here and say this. That speaks to what true discipleship is all about. A true disciple of Jesus is one who does what the Lord asks him to do. Even in crazy circumstances like this, where everybody's everywhere and everyone's donkeys tied because they've arrived. So go into the city and you will see a donkey and uh, it's never been written and begin to untie it like who's the owner? And if they ask you, just say, yeah, the Lord is in need of it and he'll return it. And they'll leave you alone. Really? Okay, I guess. A true disciple is one who does what the Lord asks him to do. Question, is that you? Is that you? See, Jesus will say in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? So just pause and think about your life this past week. Have you done what the Lord has asked you to do? Let that sit for a moment. We'll come back to it a little bit later in the sermon. So showing up the disciples now go into the city. They find the coat that Jesus had said. They untie it. They bring it to Jesus what is going on here and why does Mark include this very little, very interesting detail? This weird assignment. Why does Mark include it in his, in his gospel? And the reason is Mark is highlighting the foreknowledge of Jesus. Mark is highlighting some, there's something about this Jesus. Remember what he did to Bethmeus? Where he spoke, go. Your faith has healed you, and immediately the blind man sees. They get to the outskirts of Jerusalem, and Jesus sends his two disciples, hey, go, this is what you will find, this is what you're to do. They'll ask you this question, respond this way, they'll let you go, and it happens exactly. What is Mark trying to highlight here? The foreknowledge of Christ. Speaking to the Lordship of this one, the meticulous sovereignty of this Messiah whom he is writing about. Jesus was not a victim of unfortunate circumstances. He was not blindsided is basically what Mark is trying to say here. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. A few examples here in Mark 13, so two chapters later, Jesus will refer to the destruction of the temple, saying no stone will be left unturned on this temple. Forty years later, that is exactly what happened. The temple was destroyed. Or in Mark 14, Jesus spoke about or predicted his betrayal by Judas. Not only that, he also talked about Peter's denial in the same chapter, Mark 14. In Gethsemane, in the garden, Jesus, while they're praying with the disciples, the disciples are trying to, to, to stay awake, but they're falling asleep. Jesus will wake them up and say, my betrayer is at hand. Judas hadn't arrived yet, 
But Jesus would say to them, my betrayer is at hand. And in not too long a time, yeah, Judas was right there with the multitudes that were there. Previously to that, in Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 34, listen to what the passage says here. And when they, Jesus and the disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed him were afraid. Why? Let's just pause there and ask why. Why were they amazed and why were they afraid? Because this is the third time that Jesus will talk about his death. He has talked about how he will be crucified two other times in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And right now, he will talk about that again. So they're amazed and afraid. Like, this dude has just said he will go and be killed in Jerusalem. Why on earth is he going there? So they were amazed and afraid. And taking the cloth again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, climbing up. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles being the Romans who will crucify him. And they will mock him. And spit on him. And flog him. And kill him. And after three days. He will rise. Like I said this is the third time Jesus mentions this. So imagine if you were with Jesus now in this group. And you're walking with him. And you're going with him. And he's been saying two previous times that, hey, you know what, where we are going, yeah, it's not going to go well for me. What would you be saying to him, uh, dude, like, are you serious? You want to go there? It's almost like saying, hey, you know, if you go to certain countries around the world to share Jesus, you will not walk out of that country alive. You will be beheaded. Would you go? And what will your family say? What if it wasn't you going, but it's a friend going? Like you'd buy your friend coffee at Starbucks and say, dude, uh, are you serious? Why would you do this? Why would you do this? So they were amazed and afraid. Jesus has been speaking about what was going to happen. Here are a few questions for you. Jesus was very specific as to what was going to happen to him. They will mock, spit, flog, and kill me. But on the third day, I'll rise up again. Very specific as to what was going to happen. And he, he led the way. Like in verse, verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Knowing fully well He's walking right into the lion's den. Question, if you knew that people wanted to kill you, would you lead the way to your own crucifixion? Would you? Would you go to Jerusalem to be a ransom for many? For people who don't get it. For people who will reject you. For people who will be unfaithful constantly. Like sometimes we are. Would you do it? For those who will call you Lord, Lord many times and not do what you say. Would you? Would you do it for James and John who in chapter 10, verse 35 to 40, 
They are more interested in their positions. Lord, who will sit on you? Can we sit on your right hand and your left hand side when you inaugurate your kingdom? Would you do that, Lord? Would you do it for Peter? Who you know will betray you because Jesus, in chapter 14, talks about how Simon Peter, yeah, you will deny me. Yeah, you're saying, yeah, how you won't. Yeah, you will. Would you go to Jerusalem for Simon Peter? Would you die on the cross for the forgiveness of the sins of the Pharisees who will oppose you at every turn? Plan your murder constantly pushing up against you. Would you go to Jerusalem, enter this city, riding on the donkey, knowing fully well the hosannas you're hearing on Sunday, yeah, they will turn to crucify you on Friday. Would you go? Would you go? And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, Jesus chose to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 10. Verse 14 to 18, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know, my, and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, I, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. In other words, Jesus was not a victim of unfortunate circumstances here. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. He has authority to lay down his life, has authority to take it up on his own accord. No one takes his life from him. No, he lays it down for you and for me. Why would he do this? That leads us to the second point. He does this because of his love. The love of Christ, this remarkable, overwhelming love of Christ. Thalia quoted this verse a little earlier as she was hosting the service here today, and she mentioned Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, dear Christian, think about it this way. The truth is our professions outweigh our acts. Our professions outweigh our actions on every turn multiple times. Think about this week, for instance. How have you been this week, oh, dear Christian? Have, been, have you been a faithful disciple of Jesus? Have you been a, disciple, a faithful follower of Jesus? Or have you failed this week? Have you fallen short of the glory of God this week? What about that question that you do not want me to ask you? Or not just me, but anyone who's close to you who will hold you accountable. What about that question that you don't want to be asked? How are you doing with that area in your life? How did you do this past week? Many of us may say, you know what? 
I am sick and tired of being sick and tired because I keep repenting over this same envy, jealousy, malice, lust, you name it. I've always been repenting constantly and constantly repenting of this same sin, but it always gets me constantly. I don't even know whether God truly loves me because I keep struggling in this area you might feel. You see, a number of years ago, uh, I used to be very much involved in uh, going downtown Vancouver to do some ministry with some homeless folk down there. And as we, uh, and myself and a, a team uh, of, of, that I was a part of, we would go down and we'd buy some pizza and a pop for the homeless individuals. We would sit down on the curb, right down Hastings and Main in Vancouver, and would spend time talking, hearing their stories. How is it you got here? And by the way, did you know that a lot of the homeless folks there, they have never left that block of Hastings and Main right there where you see them? Some of them have been there for seven years, some 10 years, and never wandered, even up to Robson Street, never wandered all the way to Rogers Arena, never wandered that far. They just stay there. For, like that bizarre, it blew me away. Anyway, so we were there talking to these folks. As, as we're interacting with them, would share the gospel and invite them to consider coming to saving faith. And you know what many of them would say? They would say, you know what? I think I need to clean up. I, need, I think I need to get my acts together. There's no way God would love me because I've made such a mess of my life. You see, what they did not know is Romans 5, 8. Come as you are. God demonstrated his love for you and for me in this while you were busy wallowing in your sin. Oh, Christ loved you. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and begotten son. He loved the world when the world was in what condition, what state? Yeah, rebellious. Rebellious. Jesus did not tell his disciples, you know what? Get your acts together before he went to Jerusalem, did he? Hey, Peter, get your acts together. Hey, Judas, stop stealing from the purse. All of you disciples, be faithful. Don't run away when it gets hot. No. In many, in many ways, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. And yet, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. So he gets there and he's riding on this donkey. There are all these hosannas, all these palm leaves, and hosanna, hosanna, save us, save us. Save, us. save them from what? See, everybody who was saying, Hosanna, shouting, Hosanna, save us, save us. This kingdom of our father David, what that kingdom meant was this. The kingdom of the father David, they were hoping for a political solution to their problems. The Romans were the ones, lead, uh, were the ones ruling. The Romans were the ones who were taking all their taxes. The Romans were the ones who were pushing them down. And so they had this, they had this political issue and they thought that Jesus was the solution to the political situation. So save us, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. The same way many of us may think, oh, Jesus is the solution to my financial issue. Lord, save, save, save. And when he doesn't save, oh dear, 
I don't think I can obey this God. I don't think I can believe in this, in the Lord. He's let me down because he has not delivered you from that financial situation that you're in. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us from this political situation only on Friday. Crucify him, crucify him because they realize, ha, he cannot save us from our political situation. Little did they know that Jesus came to redeem and save them from a bigger problem. And what was that bigger problem? Their alienation from God. See, the biggest issue you have is not the problems you have right now. The biggest issue you may have is your alienation from God. Jesus came to save you from the wrath of God. those who are rebellious. That's why he came. And he enters Jerusalem riding a donkey, not a horse. Why not a horse? Because he's coming as a humble Messiah, extending clemency to people saying, come and receive forgiveness. Come and receive forgiveness. Because one day he will come on a horse. And that day, oh my If we had time, we would have looked at Revelation 19. If there is a graphic passage in the scripture, Revelation 19, particularly when Jesus is now coming on a white horse with his white robe stained with blood. Whose? His enemies. So what was he doing? To them. Very graphic image. That day is not here yet. Right now, he's still riding on a donkey and he's extending clemency. Repent, come and receive life. Come and receive life. You see, Jesus is not waiting for a future version of you to love. He's not waiting for a future version of you to love. Matt Chandler, who's a preacher whom I really enjoy and listen to quite a bit, is the one who coined that phrase. Jesus is not waiting for a future you to love. He isn't. He's saying, come as you are. I will not leave you as you are. But come as you are. See, oh dear Christian, think of the theology here. Sinners, when you come to Jesus being a sinner and you receive forgiveness... The forgiveness you receive, God now declares you righteous. What does that mean? This means, this means that what Jesus did on the cross, his death on the cross meant, his death and resurrection meant that he, he takes his goodness and he takes his perfection and he gives it to you. So his goodness and his perfection is like a white shirt. And so he takes his white shirt and he gives you and all your sin and filth, he takes that upon himself. That is called imputation of righteousness. He gives you his righteousness. That's why if you are to live here on your way home and let's say you hadn't repented for some nasty thing you would have done and let's say you get into an accident or you go to bed before you repent and you don't wake tomorrow morning and you die in your sin, you still enter heaven if you're a child of God. Why? Because of the righteousness of Christ that he gave you. So when the father looks at you, he will smile and say, oh, 
my beautiful child, my beautiful son, my beautiful daughter, righteous. See, the point here being, your righteousness is a judicial act of God. God declares you righteous, not just innocent in the sense that he's paid for your sin. No, he will declare you righteous because you have the righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. So this means even though you fail multiple times, God will still see you through the lens of his son. And that should be the motivation for us to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. That should be the motivation. So think of it this way. When you become a Christian, you become adopted into God's family. So think if you were to adopt me. Now I'm a handful. You are to adopt me. And you may say, oh, he's a little rough around the edges. No, I'm all rough. There's no around the edges here. They are all rough. So I come and I live in your house. So you will tell me, Ezzy, there will be no foul language here. Ezzy, we will respect one another. Ezzy, we will forgive each other. Ezzy, we will wait until everyone is at the dinner table and we will pray before we eat. In other words, you will now help me live my life as a member of your family. Now, there'll be multiple times where I might fight with my siblings. I might steal some stuff. I might use foul language. Will you kick me out of your house? No, I am now a rhymer. <laughs> In your will as well, right? You'd add me to your will. I'm a member of your family even though my mouth is not as clean as it should be, or my attitudes are not quite what they should be, I'm adopted in your family, so you will do your best. So in other words, you'll be pushing me to live my life and embrace the realities of who I am. Same thing as a Christian. What motivates us to obey is because God has declared you righteous declared you a son and daughter. Therefore, we live our lives in a manner worthy of our new identity as people of God. In other words, I'll put it this way. We don't obey so that we be righteous. No, 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 no. We obey because God declared all those found in him righteous. There's a difference. We don't obey so that we are declared righteous or so that we can be righteous. Oh, I want to be righteous. I want to be righteous. No, you already are. Now live what you are. As I finish, let me speak to those who may be here who are not Christian. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, world religions differ from the gospel here, where world religions will push you to do good things so that you can earn favor from God. The gospel is not that. The gospel will say, come as you are and God will work on you. Come as you are. Jesus is not waiting for a future version of you or a better version of you before he establishes relationship with you. Come as you are. The gospel is very simple. God, this God, who we are talking about here, created all things. And yeah, we can debate about science and all that stuff, but at the end of the day, there's someone who pushed the button. There's someone who said, yes, 
You may say, oh, but that's a faith claim. Sure, even with science, you go as far back, they will still make a faith claim that once upon a time there was an atom. That's a faith claim. Same applies to Christianity. There's a faith claim that God is the one who started it all. He created everyone desiring relationship, but we rebelled against this God. And our rebellion now puts us at odds with God. Now what do you do with rebels? A just judge will judge a rebel and sentence him. You'd agree. And so for God to be just, oh, now his wrath would be upon us. But God loved us enough to send his son to die on the cross and take the punishment that was ours. See, God cannot be just and say, okay, I will forgive you with no, 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 no. Someone has to pay for the wrong you did. His son paid for the wrong you did. And one day, this Christ will come back again and he will make all things new. And he's inviting you now to accept the clemency. So if you are here, oh, God is desiring to have a relationship with you. Let this day not pass you by. Let this day not pass you by. And to you, dear Christian, who you've been living on the edge and not following the Lord or living the reality of who you are, oh, today is the day where you repent and turn around and live your life in a manner worthy so when we're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, yes, from the wrath of God. Not save us from all financial issues, all oh, save us from our relationships or whatever. No, save us from the damnation that we deserve. Grant us your grace. So if you're here and you do not know Christ, at the end of this service, I'll be hanging out right outside here and those who are watching, there'll be some pastors, some leaders who are in your venue as well. They'll be there hanging out. If you're here and you don't know Christ, today's the day when you can know him. Come and speak to someone. We'll be more than happy to pray with you. Christ was not a victim of unfortunate circumstances. He willingly went to the cross. He willingly gave his life. He demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that we find in Christ. We thank you, Father, for the fact that you loved us so much to send your son to redeem us. Father, I pray for ourselves here. I know many times we, our lives do not reflect the reality that is ours in Christ. Lord, for many who are in that situation, would this be the day we turn and repent our sins and live our lives in a manner worthy? of the gospel. And Father, for those who are here who don't know you as Savior, Father, I pray for them that your spirit would continue to convict and draw them near. Lord, I pray that you'd grant them courage to come and profess Christ, repent their sin, and begin this wonderful journey with you. Oh Lord, would you help us by your spirit? Even as we sing one more song here, Father, we pray, dear Lord, would you be at work in our hearts and our lives? In Christ we pray. And God's people said...